Welcome to the Metron Manager Podcast. Thank you for joining us as we work to recover the dignity and mission of vocation. Learn more at metronmanager.com. Faith in $5. $5, six countries, four months, and a one-way ticket to southern Russia. This is a book about faith, obedience, and miracles by Jonathan Nowlin. I hope you enjoy this reading of Faith in $5. Chapter 12, The Watermelon War The camps we operated in the Tuapse region were both large and challenging. We were to run two camps of 10 days each, with over 100 Russian youth in each program. Facilities at this location were just as bad as at all the other locations where we had held programs over the past three months. Space was severely limited, housing consisted of tight, little dorm rooms, and bathrooms were the typical, unkept outhouses near the dorms. Mike and I planned to remain only through to the first few days of the second program. Because we had to leave for Moscow and then on to Israel to complete the journey that the Lord had spoken to us about. Although we were saddened that we would miss the second program, we dove full force into operating the first camp. These were the programs we had spent so much time arranging and also mobilizing students for back in the spring when we first arrived in Russia. It was hard to believe that we had begun our adventure for Christ in this very area of Russia, encountering so many difficulties and so many miracles. This field assignment had been so action-packed that it had begun to feel like an entire lifetime. Sometimes I could not even remember what it was like to live anywhere else and had completely forgotten what it was like to eat good food back in the USA. The students who came to our program were in various stages of recovery from unbelievably bad childhoods. The majority were in their mid-teens, up to about 19 years old. These young people were in the worst condition socially, mentally, and spiritually that I had ever encountered. All were from broken homes. This seemed to be the norm. Additionally, most had come through terrible forms of abuse growing up. A world without the knowledge of right and wrong may be the goal of humanist philosophers, but the aftermath and the product of that worldview, as encountered in Russia, was not a place you would ever want to live. One of the tragic statistics we discovered among our young female campers was that on average, almost all the girls had undergone over 12 abortions by the time they were 18 years old. You can imagine the emotional and psychological devastation these precious young girls were suffering During this kind of program, it was not uncommon for spiritual bondages to be stirred up inside some of the young people. When this happened, they would begin to manifest demons in various ways. Our first really bad encounter with this dynamic was right in the middle of the worship time during the first camp in southern Russia. One young girl of about 16 years old began panicking and yelling during the worship service and then yelled out, I'm going to kill her. The girl took off at a flat-out run through a dark, dry riverbed, and most of us guys sprinted after her, not knowing what she or the spirit in her intended to do. 
It was pitch black, and we could barely see two feet in front of us, as only starlight lit up the rock-filled dry riverbed. We ran with all the speed we could find to try to stop this girl as we realized that she was heading for a huge bridge. There was no doubt in our minds that she intended to jump as soon as she scaled the bridge. One by one, the guys on our team each crashed over rocks in the dark and fell headlong into the riverbed. By God's grace, no one was seriously injured, and two of the guys from our team successfully overtook the girl and restrained her from scaling the bridge. After an intense time of prayer and rebuking the evil spirit, she was completely set free that very night. She walked into total freedom and a life-transforming relationship with God during the rest of her camp experience. That is what it is all about. We are to take on the wolves and rescue the sheep in the power and by the blood of Jesus Christ. All of our petty physical sufferings was put into perspective by the miraculous rescue of this beautiful young girl who needed to be set free from the enemy of her soul. This experience brought me to a new level of understanding as I came to realize that the deliverance and restoration of this young girl was a microcosm of what needed to happen on a national level for Russia and these former Soviet republics. If God can do this for one young person in a remote region of Russia, he can do it on a national scale. Galatians 5.1 says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. All of mankind longs for freedom, and yet so many suffer under a yoke of slavery to sin and the devil. That yoke of slavery is a picture of someone being harnessed like a donkey to pull a cart, a cartload full of sin and condemnation. Praise God that Jesus has raised us up for such works as these. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Don't underestimate what God wants to do and can do through you who will listen and obey. Do you want to be noticed by heaven and feared in hell? Do you want to attract the favor of God? If so, let your heart burn with what burns on his heart and do the good works that God has prepared for you. There is absolutely no reason to ever be bored as a follower of Christ. If you are bored or feel under-challenged or underutilized in the kingdom of God, then try to accomplish something that would be impossible if it depended on the strength of men. If the scope of your willingness only allows you to attempt things that are within your experience, educational background, or ability to fund, then you are functionally sidelining the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that it delights the heart of the Lord when we allow ourselves to stretch into areas far beyond our comfort zone and perceived natural abilities in response to his leading. It is almost as if he claps his hands with joy and excitedly leaps towards someone who is willing to do what he wants to do and trusts him enough to completely fall into his empowering arms of grace. I can see him saying, yes, here is someone I can work with and prove myself through. He is the God who accomplishes above-average things with average people who are yielded to himself and filled with the Holy Spirit. In the days leading up to Mike and my departure from the team in order to complete our trip through Moscow, Israel, and back to London, there were two impressive moments that stand out in my memory to this day. There was a girl on our team who I had met in the United States during my previous discipleship training program. Her name was Alexis. Alexis. 
We had become friends during this eventful faith journey, but I never realized until the end of the trip how obedient and faithful to the word of the Lord she was. She had been keeping a secret the whole trip, eventually even longer. During our training programs the previous year, God had spoken to her to give me $50, but he had said to her, not yet, I'll tell you when it's time. In strict obedience to the Lord, she had not mentioned this to me for over a year and had held on to this $50 the entire time. Through all the hardships and needs we had faced, she had refrained from giving me the money out of compassion or human understanding and had waited for the word of the Lord. As the time drew close for Mike and me to depart, I was still in a dire financial situation. During our journey, we had received news that an important Christian conference would be happening in Israel at the time we had planned to be there, and that many of our organization planned to attend. Both Mike and I felt this conference was the purpose of our trip to Israel, and that the Lord had something in store for us at this event. We had also learned that the cost to attend this conference, including food and housing, was only $115. Mike had somehow come up with his money, but I was still completely broke. If it had not been for my rations of camp food, I would have had nothing to eat at this point. I had never been so grateful for food as I was for our regular servings of the fabulous Russian soup called borscht. I grew to love borscht and still have a fondness for it to this day. Coming up with $115 in the remaining few days before I reached Israel seemed like a far-fetched possibility. However, I was unmoved in my resolve to see this assignment to its completion, and I was completely confident that somehow the Lord would provide for this last phase of our journey. Shortly before Mike and I were to board the bus back to Krasnodar to catch our flight to Moscow, Alexis came up and handed me $50. She explained the whole story about this $50 to me, and I was deeply moved. Not by her generosity, really, but by the depth of patience and obedience she had demonstrated by waiting until the Lord told her it was time to give me this money. I thanked her from my heart and boarded the bus for Krasnodar. I was suddenly $50 closer and only needed $65 more to have enough for this conference. On the bus ride, I began reminiscing about our faith journey, about how we had come now full circle back to southern Russia. We had literally done the impossible through the power of the one who can make all things possible. The second event that impacted me strongly that day was witnessing the conclusion of faith's act of obedience to the Lord. On the plane from London to Krasnodar, Faith had heard from the Lord that she was to pay for Mike and my living expenses up until we reached the first camp in St. Petersburg. Despite our protests, she insisted on providing for us as the Lord had directed, primarily because God had told her he would repay her ten times what she spent on us. To her, this was a very good investment, and she would not take no for an answer. It is a good thing she did not take no for an answer. On the day we were to depart from Moscow, she shared amazing news with us. God had done exactly what he had promised. Faith had spent exactly $100 on us in obedience to the word of the Lord. Now she had just received an unexpected delivery of $1,000 to aid her through the year she was to live in Krasnodar. Mike and I were so excited for her that we wanted to do a little victory dance on our crowded bus, but since I was sitting with my legs stretched across open floorboards with the exposed bus engine roaring directly beneath me, we decided against it. Our trip to Moscow was mostly uneventful till we reached the city. 
Moscow in particular was experiencing a season in its history in which when stepping off of a plane, one felt he had entered the historical American Wild West. In honor of this regular comparison, we dubbed it the Wild Wild East. There were no cowboys or Native Americans, but there were plenty of guns, and everyone was out to get rich quick at any cost. Mike and I faced an additional layer of risk on this trip because we had been asked to deliver a large amount of money to a network of missionaries in Moscow. There were no ATMs in those days, and other options to obtain currency through a functioning banking system were likewise limited. Of course, we agreed to help out, but the level of personal risk we felt was tremendously amplified as we stepped into the wild city of Moscow. At that time, petty mafia, basically street thugs who were adept at spotting a foreigner immediately, prowled the streets. Once spotted, they then planned the foreigner's mugging or worse. During our many trips on the subway systems, we had developed a self-preservation game we called Ditch the Mafia. These thugs posed as regular commuters, but then followed a target until he reached an opportune location at which to be relieved of his valuables. Soon we were able to spot these individuals on the crowded subways because their presence was such a regular occurrence. Our game was to sit still when the doors opened and to not let on that we had reached our stop. The pursuers would nonchalantly stand there waiting to see if we were getting off. Our tactic was to wait until the final minute before the doors closed and then suddenly to bolt for the door and exit the train. Usually when the doors closed behind us, the would-be muggers were either automatically stopped or at least obviously exposed as followers if they too bolted for the closing door. More than once, when a thug moved to pursue us, he then realized we were on to him, so he gave up the chase. Mike and I employed this tactic multiple times as we entered the subway system and headed for our intended address. When I say intended address, that really is the case. Our directions were extremely unclear. We had little idea how to find the apartment at which we were to meet our contacts to deliver their money. The directions we did have went something like this. Exit the subway at this stop. Exit on these stairs. When you come out on the street, you'll see a brown building on the right It's the bottom floor, apartment four in that building. This seemed like a reasonable set of instructions until we exited the subway stop as directed and looked out to see not one brown building on the right, but a line of about 20 identical brown buildings on the right. The sun had long since set and it was nearly dark outside. We had just a few remaining minutes of light with which to even glimpse these buildings, much less to determine that they were in fact all brown. We began slowly walking towards the buildings as the sky quickly grew completely dark. There were no working streetlights and most window curtains were closed. So the darkness felt completely overwhelming. As we walked along a sidewalk, mostly by memory and by feeling the way along with our feet, we could hear many people shuffling along in all directions around us. It was like being in a creepy zombie movie. We were trying our best to fit into the type of walking and shuffling along that everyone else was doing in order to avoid drawing attention to ourselves. Suddenly, there was a burst of gunfire not 20 feet away from us. The sound was deafening, and the flash quickly lit up the street scene, revealing dozens of eerie figures who were standing like statues all around us. We, too, froze in place for a split second after the gunfire. Then, as if nothing had happened, everyone began moving along in their various directions again. We have to get off the street, Mike whispered in my ear. 
if someone targeted us, it would be as if they had won the lottery with all the cash we were carrying. As we approached the line of buildings, all we could do was stop for a second or two and quickly pray, asking God to tell us which building it was. With so much dangerous and unpredictable activity going on all around us in the dark, we might not get a second chance to choose a building. We both immediately heard the same thing from the Lord. Choose the fourth building on the right. We headed there immediately, as fast as we could walk without drawing attention to ourselves in the dark. Finding the door for apartment number four was also not easy without light to see by. We found what we believed was the correct door and knocked lightly. Who is it? Someone yelled in a whisper through the door. When we gave our names and told them who had sent us, they opened the door right away. Mike and I were both grabbed by the arms at the same time and pulled headlong over an upside-down couch that was obviously positioned to reinforce the door. We landed in a pile on the floor, and the older missionary couple, who were well into their 60s, said, Welcome to Moscow. What had we gotten ourselves into? Stay low and don't let your shadow form a silhouette against the window curtains, the missionary said. Why, I asked. What's going on? Don't you know, he said. We are in the middle of a massive turf war between two large rival mafia factions, and they are massacring each other over who has the right to sell watermelons. He went on to explain that this watermelon war, as it had been locally referred to, was in a stalemate at the moment, but most of the fighting had been in the open field just behind their row of buildings. These factions were using such heavy-duty weapons and in such a protracted conflict that our missionary hosts were convinced there had been some kind of coup in Russia. They finally were able to place a call to a local TV station on the day before we arrived and were greatly relieved that there had not been a coup and that this mini-war was only about watermelon sales. So here we were, overnighting at an apartment that we were not able to even walk around in. We had to stay low all night, eat sitting on the floor, and sleep on the floor to avoid making ourselves a target for snipers. Bullets had come through this couple's windows on occasions already, so the house rules were not without reason. Mike and I gratefully accepted their hospitality and spent the evening telling them news about other contacts they knew around Russia. Then we spent some time in prayer and worship together. They were a sweet and dedicated couple, and I'd become friends with their daughter who lived briefly at the Missions Training Center in Oregon. In the morning, Mike and I slipped out of the apartment just before dawn to catch the first subway train back to the airport. At this time of morning, most of the local combatants were either too drunk or hungover to carry on fighting, so it was much safer to move around. Thank you for listening to the Metron Manager Podcast. Presented by Jonathan Nowlin and the Metron Manager Project. Remember, God has given you permission and a commission to work. Learn more at metronmanager.com. <laughs>